before we get to the episode, I have a few things to talk about. First, I wanted to send a special thank you to my patrons. Thank you so much to Austin, Anthony, Kelly, Michael, Fandible, Roll Like a Girl, John, Dice for Brains, Minna, The Hydean Way, Re, Michelle, Max, M.A.B., Long Live the Dungeon, Flying Grizzly, Adrian, The One Shot Network, Waffles, Megan, Ryan, Splinters of a Broken Sun, Alice, Jillian, Tavern Tales, Zachary, DC, and the Broadswords. A lot has been going on in my personal life in the past few months, and I can't begin to express my thanks for all of your support, love, and patience throughout this time. I am so very grateful for you all. As this is the first episode of 2019, I want to wish you a very happy 2019. I hope that you'll join me in the fight for diversity, inclusivity, love, and hope in our community. This next episode is an amazing interview with Faye Onyx of Writing Alchemy. You can catch Faye at PodCon 2 this week, where Z is running a workshop on making RPG podcasts accessible. If you won't be at PodCon 2, don't worry. The link is in the show notes to access here amazing resources on that topic. And on to the episode. Hello and welcome, Faye. Thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I, I love this show and I'm just excited. <laughs> I'm so glad that you were able to make it on and that we were able to figure this out. So let's just jump right on in. Faye, why don't we start by you just kind of giving a little bit of an introduction of yourself and what you do? Yeah, so I'm queer, asexual, non-binary person. Um, I'm neurodiverse and I have a chronic back condition. And I guess the, the main thing in my life is kind of my art and all of the creative projects that I do, um, and that there are a lot around identity and making space for people, especially focusing on people who are often pushed to the sides, not included, pulling as much as I'm capable of everyone into the center and making that space. And that's kind of who I am. That's an awesome introduction. I'm just so passionate about that. Um, I have a lot of different projects uh, that this comes out in. So the two main ones are my podcast, uh, which is called Writing Alchemy, which has two podcast projects. It's kind of like two podcasts in one, but I only have time for one. So it's kind of alternating. <laughs> and so one is a series of fairy tales that I've written that have, again, like the really focused around representation and telling different types of stories. And then I also like discuss topics from the fairy tales and kind of add to the depth of the story by discussing it with guests. And then I also have Unfamiliar Heroes, which is a podcast project where people with disabilities, chronic illnesses, and divergent minds play tabletop role-playing games where their characters also have disabilities, chronic illnesses, and divergent minds. And so that's kind of the, the main thing there right now. Eventually, I will be putting fairy tales back into my podcast, but it has taken over temporarily. And then I'm writing a game system called Magic Goes Awry, and it's specifically designed to be more accessible than perhaps some other game systems. That's really cool. You have a lot of, it sounds like you have a lot of like really interesting and also like very focused on that diversity kind of aspect of projects going on. Mm -hmm. 
before we before we jump too much into any one of those, I do want to like go back a little bit because <laughs> not all of my listeners might know what neurodivergence is. So let's talk a little bit about that first, if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically, ooh, there's a, actually a couple different uh, related things, but there's a lot of diversity in the ways different people's brains work. And some of those types of uh, diversity are considered normal by our current society, and other ones are considered kind of abnormal. So you have a lot of things that are considered, for example, mental illnesses would be neurodivergent. And a lot of this comes out of a community of people. I think especially there is multiple different autistic activists who really have been developing understanding of, hey, just because someone's brain works differently in a way that society doesn't make room for doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the person's brain. And that's a perfectly healthy way to be. And our goal should actually be making space for different ways that people's brains work. And so the term neurodivergent comes out of that way of understanding disability. Uh, but I do want to also say that there's, I would say, two main ways of understanding disability. One is this idea of social construction, which is it's just a type of human diversity but if society doesn't make room for it, then you might be constantly running into problems and those can be difficult and painful and make all sorts of challenges in your life. But it's not you're not broken or you don't need to be fixed. Society is what needs to be fixed. And there's another way of experiencing it, which is disability is a limitation. So people with depression might be more likely to experience it as this is an illness I would like cured. Right. And so those are both ways of experiencing disability. And I just want to make sh sure everyone knows those are both equally valid and different people will feel different ways about maybe the same thing, such as ADHD. Some people will feel like my brain's just different and I want society to make room for me. And other people will be like, I feel like this is an illness that I'm treating. And some people will feel both simultaneously. So I just wanted to put that out there as kind of an important way of understanding things. Yeah. Like to me, neurodiversity is almost like saying it, it's almost like a category, like a social category, yeah. sort of like there are many different genders. Yeah. And every single one is valid. There are many different neurodiversities or or neurodiverse individuals, and mm -hmm. they're all valid. Right. And so neurodivergent is kind of a term for anyone whose brain doesn't fit into what we would consider typical or normal. So it's kind of that broad category. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that like I probably will start to talk about later too is that I really feel that in terms of disability, uh, disability is the broad term, including chronic illness and divergent minds. We're really socially in this period where people are starting to learn more, but this kind of the overall awareness of society isn't very high. It really reminds me of like when I was uh, a teenager, how things were in terms of being queer and being non-binary uh, and like my childhood of where society was at then and the big shift that's happened in my lifetime. And I really feel like with disability, we're at the beginning of that shift, but there's still not as much 
awareness yet and people haven't yet socially worked out here's how we navigate this as a group as much. There's definitely smaller communities that are, you know, developing this um, understanding. A lot of Mm -hmm. disability activists are doing that, but I think larger communities are still starting this process. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Like, I think, I think a lot back, you know, I'm, I'm not that old, but, (laughs) but, but I think about where I was and where the society was when I was a teenager. And like, really, in such a short time, we really have come very far because like, I mean, I graduated high school in 2005 and 2005 was when gay marriage became legal in Canada. And like, so for me, all throughout like my primary Mm -hmm. and secondary school, it was like being gay wasn't a normal or okay thing. Being queer was not something that was talked about Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of people who you know if you were close to them maybe you knew that they were queer but like but everything was like hush hush Mm -hmm. especially also for like trans and non-binary folks like yeah not to say that there's still not a lot of stigma and stuff like that happening but of course not just the level of you aren't real messages that were happening (laughs) when I was a kid compared to now is a big difference. And even like in terms of like, not even if you look at that particular community, even in terms of things like when I was a kid, we never had like anti-bullying campaigns in Mm. my like elementary school. (laughs) We never had that. And like now like there's, you know, the there's an entire, at least in my province in Canada, there's like an entire month dedicated to like the anti-bullying message. And like Mm. there's all this like education and there's all this like conversation around it and those were things that didn't happen when i was a kid in school Mm -hmm. so i find it really interesting like comparing kind of what you're experiencing right now in the disability community of you feeling that that's very much like the beginning like as though you were back in school and experiencing that. And and that's not to say that there weren't amazing disability activists like generations ago doing amazing things, getting stuff like in the U.S., the American with Disabilities Act. Like, it's not like we haven't been here doing the work, but in terms of the social awareness around issues like stigma and stereotypes Mm -hmm. and language use. How do you feel that games or technology and games are affecting those messages or getting those messages across? Well, I feel like in general, the role-playing game community specifically and games in general are still, again, mostly at that kind of basic level of just beginning to be aware And there's still a huge lack of awareness on a lot of levels. And part of what I'm really passionate about is helping encourage the community to kind of open up and realize what's going on and that there is this whole different way of... I don't know, it's hard to explain, like, but it's just anytime you open up to a new community that you weren't fully including before, you have a new way of doing things, a new way of thinking about things, and it opens everything up and it makes it more diverse and more, it's better for everyone. Mm-hmm. And just part of what I want to do is help that process be part of that process because I feel like, and I'll, I'll just kind of tell like a personal story. The reason why I started my Unfamiliar Heroes series where I have like people with disabilities playing characters with disabilities is I realized that in my writing, I was writing characters with disabilities, but I was not playing them in tabletop role-playing games. And I 
at one point just asked myself, why? Why am I not doing that? And I realized there was like all of these little things adding up to this feeling of like where it felt like I couldn't. Like there wasn't the space there for that. And part of that is just a lot of little things like um, subtleties of game mechanics, of how the game mechanics work with disability. It, and in some cases, disability isn't in the mechanics at all. And so then you end up trying to play a character with a disability. But then like because it's not present, it like sort of it's really hard to actually do. And you kind of like forget it almost. Right. And in other cases, there's a mechanic present, but it's so, like, punishing that your character can't fully participate, even if in this setting, a character with the disability that you're trying to portray would find a way to participate. Like, the mechanic is preventing them. So, for example, in Dungeons & Dragons, there's, or is it Pathfinder? One of the two. There's a rule where a character with a prosthetic leg moves at half the speed of any other character. And it's like, if you have an active game where everyone's running, doing chase scenes, basically that character's literally being left behind. And it's like in the real world, there's, you know, if you have an athletic character with a prosthetic, like in the real world, we have prosthetics for running. And in a world with magic and all these things, why aren't there prosthetics for running? Why doesn't the character have to spend one round switching their prosthetic to the one designed for running if they're not already wearing it? And then they can run. So part of it is, I think that there's just not as much experience with how to represent disability well. So when it's included at all, it's a little bit clunky and it causes problems. Right. And I think like these are really, really important things to bring up and and really important things that designers should be able to keep in mind when designing. Because mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about how we build games for certain communities in terms mm -hmm. of having non-binary characters be shown in game mm -hmm. or any kind of gender fluid yeah. character being shown as a possibility to play because it, it's so important to be able to see yourself in games for mm -hmm. it to feel like a place for you yeah yeah and i actually want to bring up something that you had brought up back when we were doing international podcast month mm -hmm. that there was a lot of ableism present and that was like so important to me that you brought up because mm -hmm. one of the things that I had said from the beginning is like, we don't tolerate homophobia. We don't tolerate sexism. We don't tolerate any kind of racism. And I said in our statement, we don't tolerate ableism. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was my belief, perhaps, mm -hmm. that people knew what that meant or knew what sorts of language that included. Because mm -hmm. when you brought it up and you were like, you know, information on ableist language, words like crazy hurt just as much as sexist or homophobic or racist language. Right. And my assumption was the people participating would know what that was. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was so important to acknowledge mm -hmm. because it's it's not something I think anybody necessarily... Okay, I don't want to dismiss this. How do I word it? I believe that for the most part, the people involved in IPM mm -hmm. wanted to be diverse Absolutely. and wanted to be open and accepting Absolutely. and like celebratory. Yes. And I think obviously there are some people who intentionally use language like that because they don't believe in mental health illnesses or because they mm -hmm. don't believe these things are valid. Yeah. So I think that bringing it back to what mm -hmm. you said 
just earlier in this conversation about this just being feeling like the start yeah. of the awareness. Yeah, absolutely. My assumption was that that awareness was already there. <laughs> yeah. It's so important for people in these communities to bring this up because we do need to talk about mm -hmm. ableism. And maybe this is something we need to be, well, not maybe, like <laughs> this absolutely is something that we need to be far more open about and better about yeah. and cognizant of because language, we've seen what language can do. Right. And we've seen how hurtful language can be. Yeah. And even in my own life, when I was younger, we used to like, oh, that's crazy. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's so insane. Yep. Using the word yep. insane as like cool. That was something we said all the time yeah. as kids. Yeah. And even as an adult now, every once in a while, I'll start to say yeah. something oh, yeah. like, oh, that's crazy. And be like, oh, no, that is bleh. like, there are so many adjectives in the English language. <laughs> I, I usually go for wild. Yeah. <laughs> Some, that's something people actually use. <laughs> it is. <laughs> And we want, and I want you to yeah. feel welcome yeah. and recognized. And I want all people of all kinds. And so I think that was so, so important for you to bring up, even if you felt that it was a risk, because we, mm -hmm. we do need to hold ourselves accountable. Yeah. Well, and I think that the, um, the way the community responded as a whole was really like made me feel really good. Like people do really genuinely care, but you know, there's always at least one person and there was one person, right? And basically I think what happens is ableist language, kind of like sexist language is super ingrained into the common language. It's like super present. There is a lot of it and it's, really hard work to change, like really hard. And I think sometimes the knowledge of how much hard work that is going to be is kind of scary. Yeah. Um, and to know that you've been doing it your whole life. I mean, I've been saving words like that my whole life, too. I mean, and that's why I think it's really helpful to remind people that this is kind of that time where we're all starting to kind of there's enough collective knowledge and like building that's been happening that we're all starting to become aware of this. And it's also kind of the more painful time because it's the time when everyone's still using this language mostly. Right. And a lot of times people will say stuff like, well, when I say crazy, I don't mean someone with a mental illness. I mean that something's, oh, it's just really extreme or something. And I'm not talking about that. And you know, what it really comes down to is that the word crazy still applies to people, right? Right. And so if someone is on the street and they're having some sort of issue go on and maybe they're just rehearsing lines for a play, but they're talking to themselves very intensely, that word, the stigma associated with that word is going to come up and it's going to be applied to that person. And so using the word crazy to mean something extreme associates the idea, it, it, it builds the stigma that mental illness is extreme and it's dangerous and it's out of control. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of just that idea of using these words in these negative and sometimes even, even positive contexts builds these ideas, these stigmatizing ideas, which do impact people. Right. And so like, just because the word crazy can be used to mean something like extreme in a positive way doesn't mean that it's not still building this idea that a person with a mental illness is out of control, is extreme, mm -hmm. is dangerous. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's, it's quite interesting because like, I find especially now as a parent, I think a lot about like how to address these kinds of things as, as my kid grows. Language per generation changes. Mm -hmm. And I think that us calling our friends out at age 15 right now or age 30 Mm -hmm. or age 60 is no different than calling out a relative who is still using words that are inappropriate for, you know, the LGBT community Mm -hmm. or for racial groups, Mm -hmm. you know, like we we can't use words like that anymore. We can't say things like crazy. And and it is, it's work. Mm -hmm. It's work to rebuild your mind around language. Yeah, it is a lot of work. And it's, you know, I kind of take an approach of like, just start by reducing it. I I encourage people to have a healthy relationship to the process because it is a long ongoing process. And just like start with the easiest replacements. So for me, wild is a good replacement for crazy. And just start with those and kind of just build on that. The key is like, as long as you're putting effort in and not just telling yourself, oh, it's too big, I'll never get there because even reducing it helps. So work on start with the ones that are easiest (laughs) and you're already reducing it. You're already making it better. Yeah. And I think like to bring this back to RPGs (laughs) is like RPGs are, I hope for most people, a safe place to practice language, to practice representation, Mm -hmm. to practice things that you're not used to. Mm -hmm. And so it's a safe space to make mistakes and to relearn the language Mm -hmm. without necessarily offending anybody because you're around a table with your friends. Mm -hmm. It's hard work to change the way you've learned. It absolutely is. And and I do want to also point out that there are some ableist concepts that are kind of deeply ingrained into certain parts of role-playing games. So the concept of insanity is kind of deeply ingrained into certain role-playing games. And the thing is, insanity isn't really a real thing. It's kind of a giant stigma of mental illness. It's a collective stigma. There's not like a real thing that's insanity that you can get. You can get specific mental illnesses or um, your brain can be divergent in different ways. But insanity isn't really like a real thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so the concept of insanity is kind of like this almost like inherent stigma thing it's historic Mm -hmm. and because of that it's been baked into stuff and that's really difficult to work with because i totally get that people who want cosmic horror they want to have mental impacts on their characters from cosmic horror that's like a lot of the part of cosmic horror and newer cosmic horror games a lot of them are starting to do like stress-based systems um systems that involve instead of insanity like having core values that are being like altered or eroded and there's a lot of other things you can do but it is really challenging (laughs) to have a whole genre that's basically got this key piece that is basically stigma around mental illness even if right now a lot of the newer things are moving away from that to more specific things that aren't inherently stigmatizing right and a great example of that is like you know the the ravenloft setting in dungeons and dragons right like there's insanity checks and the fight flight freeze response is pretty universal not just the humans but like animals too right so that is something that's actually like core universal and it's really basic and so replacing like insanity checks with this kind of something based on fight 
fight, flight, fear response or stress, which are all kind of that core, deep, hardwired aspects of our brains, it really does still get at that sort of like how you're relating to something that's really terrifying or horrifying right? without needing to delve into stigma land. And that isn't to say that characters won't end up having mental impacts from the, the things that they encounter, but we can do that without using inherently stigmatizing concepts. Right. A lot of times, even just in creating games, when people are creating villains or they're creating challenges, that concept of insanity will come up when really what they're looking for is maybe a hallucination or something that's an actual like symptom that can happen uh, from a situation. And it's like, it's actually wouldn't take much in a lot of cases just to shift the language. And the core concept actually can shift over to just being what's actually happening here? Oh, the characters are hallucinating. Okay, that's cool. They're hallucinating. They got into some alien technology and now they're hallucinating. Fine. We don't need to bring the stigmatizing concept of insanity into that. Right. And I think using symptoms Mm -hmm. instead of the issue is sometimes what people are trying to get at more is the symptom rather like the specific symptom rather than pulling in the larger concept, which might be less nuanced and less um specific to the situation anyway less vivid yeah we're trying to break down barriers around mental health Mm -hmm. illnesses and saying like rather than building in these stigmatized terms Mm -hmm. is to instead describe the symptoms and use the symptoms yeah absolutely and this is actually why i created on my website a bunch of different resources yes let's talk about that yeah until you're aware of the stigma around mental illness and someone brings you aware of the concept that actually insanity is this historic stigmatizing thing that isn't really real like it kind of seems like a real thing (laughs) and so i've been creating a bunch of resources on my website which is writingalchemy.net and i have a whole resources section and so one of the things that i'm doing is i'm i've written some articles uh so the main series of articles i have is called the trope of the week series cuz i was releasing it every week for a while um and it's basically about common storytelling patterns with disability that are problems in various ways and it focuses a lot on what to do instead and how to kind of address that. So like, for example, disabled characters are disproportionately represented as villains, uh, which is an issue because we're not very represented as heroes. Right. Um, and again, that makes disability seem like scary. And it's kind of the classic example of like Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker. So Darth Vader has very noticeable medical technology, which is keeping him alive. And Obi-Wan even says he's more machine now than man twisted and evil you know and it's like it's literally using the fact that he has medical technology that is keeping him alive as symbolic of the fact that he's so evil and inhuman and how is someone who uses a respirator or medical device supposed to feel about that like it you're literally making disability into a metaphor for evil uh whereas luke has um a prosthetic hand right. and it looks like a, a regular flesh and blood hand and you don't really notice it most of the time except when it doesn't get injured when a flesh and blood hand would and that's kind of like a contrast of like um 
acceptable disabilities versus non-acceptable. Yeah, and the way that when disability is used for villains, it it often is used in ways that are deeply stigmatizing of disability. And so it's like, okay, so if you do have a disabled villain, how do you want how do you handle that? And it's like, okay, well, make sure their disability is not symbolic of their evilness. Right. But it's also like, make sure you have some heroes with disabilities and keep an eye out for like who's got the most visible disability. And if all of your villains have super visible disabilities and all of your heroes have invisible disabilities, you might want to think about that and maybe do some swapping. So it's a lot of stuff like that. And so it's a series of articles about just like, yeah, making people aware these are patterns that are happening. And also, what can you do about it? And does it mean you can never have a disabled villain? Of course not. But how do you do it in ways that don't feed this pattern? So it's a lot of that sort of stuff. I do also have a series that I'm sort of starting that I haven't had as much time for as I wanted to, but it's about stuff in role-playing games specifically where like it's mechanics okay, or aspects of the games that are challenges, like what we just talked about with insanity mechanics. Um, that's the one article I've finished at this point. And it's a bunch of alternatives for people who are like homebrewing where you can go in and think about which... Here's a like a list of like 15 different ways you can handle this. What's going to be appropriate for my game and the system I'm altering? Right. I also have a bunch of um, resources for including players with disabilities. Um, so uh, yeah, I've got tons of tons of things, <laughs> and I'm going to link to all of these in the show notes so folks can click on them as they awesome. Need to. And so it's also uh, just accessibility resources for role playing games. And it's uh, a bunch of stuff. I, I broke it into like little groups and stuff of like themes, but it's it's everything from emotional accessibility, which are things like script change tool, which you've talked about with uh, Brebo, mm -hmm. uh, who created it, which is an amazing tool that helps everyone, not just people with disabilities. Again, it just makes everything more wide open where there's more space for people to be who they are and bring their whole selves to the table and because it allows people to be like this con this specific concept is not working for me in this game let's rewind and just course change and it doesn't have to be about disability but it's like anyone can use this right like there are there are some some tools that have been built specifically for that accessibility yeah. in in terms of like player safety mm -hmm. and allowing player and character agency. Mm -hmm. So I think some of these systems are starting to be recognized as social check-ins. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to say like is everybody okay or is everyone feeling mm -hmm. good? Yeah. But it doesn't address everything. Sure. It's an amazing start. Mm -hmm. And it's something that exists in role playing now that didn't exist a decade ago. Or if it did exist a decade ago, it was very like indie. Yeah. And that's where we're excited. I'm excited to see that like this is an accessibility tool and it's starting to become more common, more accepted, even part of game systems. And I'm just really excited to have other aspects of accessibility also come in. And that's also why I'm making a game system, uh, because in writing my game system, I'm really thinking about how can I structurally build accessibility into the core foundations of my game? Not just put it in later, but make it be a core aspect of it. And that's part of what I'm really excited about. One of the things that I'm doing with this is 
Well, it all started when I thought I was doing a lasers and feelings hack, uh, which is basically just writing my own version of a lasers and feelings game. But yeah, no, it turns out it's an actual whole game system. I was just like, change this, change that. Actually, I'm changing everything. So you're a game designer <laughs> I, is what you're I'm telling me as designer. well. I was inspired <laughs> by lasers and feelings. Um, but the... The core mechanic of lasers and feelings is a very simple, straightforward mechanic. And I took that and basically I wanted to make a game that was had a lot of the feelings of when I play a really good Dungeons and Dragons game, but with a lot of let a lot less to keep track of. So I started with the lasers and feelings mechanic because I wanted it to have a lot less math, a lot less to keep track of, because that's a huge cognitive burden that is a barrier to a lot of people. Right. And what I did is I made the core set of rules, um, which are very explicit, like super step-by-step. Basically, it's really super step-by-step. So you start out with like a person just describes what their character wants to do. And then they work at the game master to figure out what ability they're going to be using, roll some dice, get the results of that. And so that's the core mechanic. And I have a bunch of additional rules for like, this is how magic works and stuff, but they're not actually completely necessary They're but they do make gameplay more fun overall. So I basically just separated it out is here's the basics. If you use only these things, you will know how to play the game. Here's this other section called the details. They will add a lot of um, information that will help some people play the game. But for people who really want things simple, they don't actually need them. And it's just these two separate sections. And so they can skip that section if they want to. And then if they think, well, I really would like a little more rules for magic because, you know, everything's a little loosey-goosey and I, there's a lot of situations where I don't quite know how to handle it then you can just dip into that piece of the rules, but you don't right. actually have to understand all of the rules all at once, or you don't even need to use all of them. Just the core mechanic, that's what you need to play the game, and the rest you can use or not use. That's actually brilliant. It's almost like a um, almost like a quick start guide versus like the in-depth <laughs> guide, except rather than saying, oh, this is your quick start, and then you have to get into the in-depth, it's like, no, no, here are your two options. You can... Like you can either play the quick start mm-hmm. and it works great on its own right. as this like awesome individual like rules light thing, mm-hmm. or you can play the like more in depth version of it. Right. That's a really cool way of designing. I'm really excited about it. I'm also making t- yeah. two versions of character creation where it's like the character creation is basically almost the same, but the lists of abilities in one for the simplified one is fewer abilities so it's just the things that i think are going to be the most popular and the easiest to use and so if you're looking maybe you're a first-time player or maybe you're just someone who knows that you're gonna have the most fun if you go with the things that are easiest to do because they're all great abilities they're not just because they're easier to use doesn't mean they're like less cool than the other abilities they're just less detailed right so they can use the simplified rules whereas if someone has a very specific idea for i want a character who does summoning then you can do (laughs) the like the full list that's longer maybe would be overwhelming for some people but other people will be like just excited of like there's the summoning ability in this particular setting summoning's a little weird but it's also kind of (laughs) cool yeah that is that's neat because like i think that the assumption is that like a quick start guide is like for oh okay so (laughs) language 
speaking of language, the first word that pops into my my head is like, oh, a dumbed down version of the rules. Right. Like, that's exactly what we're talking about. Right. Like these like societal like yeah. terms that have been built into our brains. Right. Anyways, like a simplified version of the rules. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when they look at quick start guides, the like language around it, they're like, oh, that's like the simplified version. But you really like if you really want to play the game the pure way or the proper way right. or like the best way. Right. You have to do the full game. Right. And and also where sometimes certain really cool things aren't available until you get into the full version where I'm trying to make it so that everyone has an equally good access to making an awesome character equally good access to having an awesome time it's just literally these are two equally valid options based on what's going to give you the most enjoyment what's going to work best for you your brain your group yeah and i think those are important conversations to have at the table at the beginning you know like when we talk yeah. about session zeros yeah we should also be checking in on like what about the rules like are there certain mechanics that are just like really complicated and hard for people to mm -hmm. like understand right that we can avoid right and with with my game system there's also this kind of aspect of i really wanted to make it so that there were specific abilities which is not something that lasers and feelings has which is why i got this whole new game system but it's this idea of having like i want to have every possibility that a person could possibly want or think of there's an ability for that um there's room for all of these types of creativity and i also want to make things as simple as possible but that does mean that sometimes things like summoning get a little bit funny but yeah so like water magic i want that creativity i want it just to be like think of something you want to do with water you can do that but keep in mind, magic has a habit of going awry. So the bigger the thing you're trying to do, if you get a partial success or a failure, the weirder it's going to get. And that's the only thing that controls how big the thing the character is doing is simply the consequences of failure, which is common because right. it's a highly unstable world magic system in this whatever setting you want. But it's highly unstable magic. But you want to do summoning. It's like, I don't want to lock us into a setting with different planes, okay? I also really want to get around the idea that you're literally <laughs> teleporting people to you who will die, potentially, based on what you're having them do. That's kind of cool. There's a lot of potential there. That's super cool. You could split the party and then be like, oh, we need to unlock this door. Can we summon our rogue friend to come do it? But then you get a partial success and there's a glitch and then it turns out that the construct that came can't actually physically interact with things. So then you have the rogue coaching the other person through picking the lock. You know, there's a lot of potential. I adore that. There's a lot more detailed rules to that because you want to kind of be like, well, what happens to the other person's uh, real body? Right? Yeah, for sure. So what's what's the um, release expectation <laughs> around your uh, your game? Are you hoping to do a Kickstarter or to put it on, I think it's itch.io or itch.io, or are you doing a free release or what's yeah, the plan? Yeah, so I have a version of it that's much less developed already on my website, so people can check that out. But there's major changes in the version two that I'm developing right now. I'm hoping to get the, at least most of that up. Basically, I have this section I'm writing for Game Masters that has a lot of like, if you've never game mastered before sort of information. And so I might not be able to get all of that ready by the end of the year, but I want to have a draft of the rest of the game. 
including the game master the game master tools which is like because it's really hard coming up with creative weird things magic can do every time it's a very extensive list of possibilities for ways that things can go weird because a lot of the fun of the game is all about how magic goes weird <laughs> yeah and so here's a list a very extensive list of random magical effects or what could go wrong with teleportation specifically and so those tools I want to have up because they're really helpful and they make it more accessible to the game master. But I might not have the full game master section, but Magic Goes Awry version two will be on my website. And a lot of the stuff like having multiple versions of character creation is actually kind of optimal to be on a website because then it's just like, oh, I want the simplified character sheet. I want the more detailed character sheet. It's, it's a lot of you can just go to different pages, choose the page you want to go to stuff. Long term, someday I hope to have a Kickstarter and have an awesome book with art. But right now I'm kind of just doing the free version. Donate if you like the game. Donations really do help. But again, I want it to be as accessible as possible. And a lot of times with folks with disabilities, a lot of people are really low income. So I want to make that as available to people as possible. Right. That's really awesome. I love that. I want to know two questions. What got you into playing RPGs? Mm. And I'm assuming that there was some shift from playing RPGs to making <laughs> RPGs and to writing about RPGs. Mm. And I kind of want to hear about that. Ah, well, so how I started is actually I've been playing RPGs for about 10 years and it started with the fact that I kind of my whole life I've had stories like novels kind of just going on in my head. Like if I'm bored or I'm like doing the dishes or whatever, I'll be just like, where did I leave off on that novel I was writing in my head? And so I would tell these stories to my girlfriend, my, well, now wife. You know, sometimes like if she's like having stressful thoughts as she's trying to go to sleep and I'm like, I'll tell you what the latest chapter of my story is. And she just kind of, based on that, she was like, oh, you need to play role-playing games. <laughs> and she she never played them before either. So she put an ad out on Craigslist for queer and queer friendly uh, gamers uh, to teach us how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And we met some amazing friends and I learned how to play role playing games. And she was absolutely right. I love role playing games. <laughs> I love that. That's super cute. That is like, that is an adorable how you got into gaming story. That is so wholesome and pure. And I love it so much. Yeah. And so then actually all of this came out of my love of role playing games combined with the stories in my head, because that's what led me to do my podcast, which was at first the fairy tales. And I will, I am still writing fairy tales in the background. For those of you who know me, I am still working on them. <laughs> and so I was doing my podcast and I was working on a lot of this stuff. And I was just like, again, this question, why am I not playing disabled characters in my role playing games? And, uh, and that somehow pretty directly went into, oh my gosh, I need to make room for disabled people in this space. This space is something I'm really passionate about. There's a special magic that creative storytelling combined with ra randomness has in role-playing games, and there needs to be more space for disabled players and disabled characters. And I'm just like, oh, the best way I can possibly think to do that is to do an actual play role-playing game podcast where everyone has a, a disability and they're playing characters with disabilities. So we have just as much diversity as possible of different disabled experience because 
you know, just because I am a disabled person doesn't mean I know what it's like to have a different disability. And so let's just make this. And and so I was making it and the process of making it, it's like, oh, I need to have information for people who've never played role playing games before. And then that's where I started writing stuff because I'm like, oh, I need to have information for my participants to kind of make sure that they have all this, you know, information and I'm not assuming that they'll know things they don't know. And all of a sudden I'm like writing stuff. Right. And then I'm like, I really want a rules like Dungeons and Dragons game. And I'm like, Lasers and Feelings has some, but it kind of depends on people actually knowing what character classes are. Right. If you've never played Dungeons and Dragons before, how are you supposed to know what a bard is? And it's like, oh, I need to make a Lasers and Feelings hack. And then I'm like, starting that? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm writing a whole game. This is an entire independent game because... I want this wild creative magic, which Dungeon World's awesome. But for me, I want that big magic. I want that big creativity. I want spells you can just shape how you need them. Because as much as I love Dungeons and Dragons, it's my biggest frustration is like, why can't I do this thing with the spell? It says, you know, control water. Why can't I control the water the way I want to? Right. Yeah. Let's have big magic and now I'm making a whole game system. And I'm like, yeah, let's make it from the ground up, make accessibility part of it. That's how I got here. I love that. That's awesome. And I think like your point about making space is like, like RPGs are a creative endeavor. RPGs mm -hmm. are fantastical and they are a creation of the mind. So why can't right. there be that space? Okay. If you need to make a building accessible for somebody that was built in like the 1930s and like now it needs wheelchair ramps. Like I get that takes money and time to build and it can be done, but it takes time. Well, it doesn't take time to make space in RPGs. It's all in our heads. It's all creative. It's all like something that we can just make the space for. It's not difficult. It's like a culture shift. So Faye, is there anything that you really feel you haven't gotten the message out or something that you like really want to to say or to talk about in RPGs about barriers or things that are going really well or things that you wish were different or any other messages you have for our listeners. I wish I had more time to talk about all of it because I'm passionate about all of it. <laughs> but I mean, I think the main thing is the one thing I haven't actually mentioned is like in the US, we actually have current new statistics, which came out recently. And that is that one in four adults in the US has a disability of some kind. So I guess the main thing is also just like, this isn't some niche, small thing. You know, this is about making games and community more accessible to all of us. And also that there's a lot of different levels accessibility happens on. There's like the social dynamics at the virtual or in-person table and making people welcome. There's the game mechanics themselves and the game design aspect and then the interaction with the group and how we change roles. And there's the stories we tell. Sometimes there's an absence of disabled characters or the presence of disabled characters and how we tell stories about uh, disability within games. And and then there's also making space for real feeling player characters with disabilities. And so there's there's a lot of levels to it. And there's also the like social language level of how we talk and are we using words that 
maybe affects some people disproportionately and makes certain people feel unwelcome. So there's a lot to keep track of. And um, I definitely understand that it's a lot, especially since it's kind of like just starting to come into some people's awareness. And it's really, I'd say, just choose something that draws you in and start there. That it doesn't have to be a big overwhelming thing, but that we can make the process of learning how to be more inclusive accessible too. Uh, and you can do that, help yourself with that by starting with things that are easier, uh, starting with things that have more appeal to you. So if you're really excited about like having disabled characters, you could read up on common portrayals that are harmful and work on like how to do things differently. So it's kind of like finding those areas that are going to be places where you can start unraveling and rebuilding. Yeah, I, th I think that's really important. And that is something that we can do and that we can focus on is taking the time to make that space and taking the time to learn how to make that space. It's better for your players and for the people you care about mm -hmm. to feel welcome right. than to sit there feeling like this isn't for them or that they don't belong. Yeah, and, and responding with an open heart to, we'll say, I wouldn't even say criticism so much as when someone brings a new thing to your awareness, whether it's a specific word or a, a larger thing. It's really easy, especially I have anxiety, so it's really easy to feel like, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me and to have that really go there, but to kind of try to keep that open heart of like, this person is having the courage and the trust in me to bring up something that is a piece of culture we're all working on changing together. They're, they're having the courage to bring this up. And the best way to respond is to like listen and make space for what they're saying and to do the best to go forward together. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, it's kind of just having that space. That's perfect. That's beautiful. So Faye, I love that. That's the perfect way to end off. And I so appreciate you coming on the show and talking about this because it's so, so important. And I think the more we can get the word out about these sorts of issues, the, the better it is for our communities because we can only grow and we can only make RPGs more accessible by, by pushing those doors open a little bit further, a little bit further, mm -hmm. a little bit further. And we do that by doing things like this. Yeah. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, so writingalchemy.net is the place where you can find Magic Goes Awry, my articles, my podcast, my resources page. So that's a big one. Uh, but also my podcast is on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. So those are the best places to get a hold of me. I also have a Facebook page, which I believe it's just uh, Facebook, all that stuff, slash Writing Alchemy. But you can find all of the links to all of the social media at writingalchemy.net in the sidebar. <laughs> Thank you so much, Faye. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this was great. Yeah, making the community uh, a broader, more inclusive space, you know, one conversation at a time. Support for the I Am Here podcast, presented by RPG Casts, is made possible by listeners like you.
You can help the show going for as little as $1 a month when you become a patron on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash rpgcasts to check out exclusive rewards for patrons and to make your pledge. The intro and outro music for I Am Here was composed by Emily E. Mayo. Special thanks to Peter Grelly for designing the graphic art and assets for both RPG casts and for I Am Here. Thank you so much for listening. It means so much.